place to hide. No place to run. No place to run. The mutant age. The mutant age has now begun. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to uh, well, something a little bit different for this channel here. Uh, we're not going to be talking about a comic book today, but an animated special that, uh, well, kind of falls in line with uh, what we do here on the channel of late. Uh, you know, the show is called X-Lapsed, where I try to catch myself up on stuff that I missed out on or chose not to read or uh, came out while I was in the middle of a temper tantrum of some sort and... While the special we're going to talk about today isn't something that I consciously missed out on, it's uh, something that I did miss out on all the same. Uh, this is Pride of the X-Men, the uh, somewhat legendary Pride of the X-Men. Uh, <laughs> this came out in 1989, and I started reading the X-Men uh, probably a year or two after this, and uh, never actually got around to watching this until, well, as of this recording, yesterday. <laughs> it's been... Boy, uh, 30-odd years and uh, never got around to it. It's one of those things that you'd see on VHS at the comic shop, but it would be like 70 bucks. I mean, it was just insanely priced back in the day. And uh, frankly, none of us had the 70 bucks to part with for a 20-minute cartoon. And I remember growing up hearing that this was on TV occasionally as part of that... Uh, was it the Marvel Action Hour or something like that? It had like a, a RoboCop cartoon, some dinosaur thing. Uh, well, evidently, Pride of the X-Men would show up on that occasionally as well. And despite the fact that every Saturday night while I was putting together my bundle of newspapers, I was a paperboy for Newsday when I was a kid, and every Saturday... Well, the Sunday paper would come in many, many packets. You'd get all the different sections. They were all separate. So the night before, you'd have to put them all together. At least that's the way it used to be. I don't know how it is now. Uh, then again, I, I mean, they don't have kids doing it anymore either. So I would have to be in my garage putting these papers together. And on Saturday nights, I would always take a few minutes to flip through the, uh, the TV guide that came with uh, Newsday every week. And I would look through it for several different reasons. I would try to see if there was any new pro wrestling on TV. I would try to see if there's any Laurel and Hardy going to be on uh, AMC, back when AMC was, you know, the classic movie channel. And I would look for Pride of the X-Men. It would usually just say whatever the... I think it was the Marvel Action Hour. I might be mistaken if that's what it was called, but it would usually just say that. You know, it wouldn't say what was going to be on it. And so I remember leaving like a, a tape in the VCR when I went out to deliver the papers, and uh, I'd come home and it would be RoboCop or Spider-Man or that dinosaur thing. I just never caught Pride of the X-Men. And by the time it became something that was readily available, I'd already grown into a cynical jerk of a comic fan who uh, only wants the comics, didn't want any of the animated stuff, didn't want the movie. So, I mean, YouTube's been around for... I mean, 16 years now, so Pride of the X-Men's been something within arm's reach for quite a while, and I think it I, I might be on Disney Plus now, I'm not totally sure. I know the, the regular animated series is there, uh, but I don't know about Pride of the X-Men. I, I guess I could check. I probably should have done that before I hit record, huh? But uh, I didn't, so maybe it's there, maybe it's not, but uh, 
Fact remains, I hadn't seen it until just yesterday, and it's always been something that's sort of kind of been, you know, in the back of my mind as something that I should check out. It feels like a uh, seminal moment in X-Fandom, you know, the first, you know, I guess full-length we can call it, X-Men cartoon here. It wasn't just a guest appearance by the Silver Age team in in Spider-Man and his amazing friends. It wasn't just a cameo somewhere. This was a full-blown X-Men story. And one that I've been curious about for quite a long time. I've heard folks talk about this, and it's uh, usually it's usually either uh, riddled with you know nostalgia goggles, where it was the best thing they'd ever seen, or it's uh, something that was just inferior to the uh, 1992 through what was it 1996 1997 animated series, which. I did watch some of that. I watched the first season of uh, the X-Men animated series every single week. That was one that I would set the VCR for every week, even if I was there to watch it. I, I, I taped everything so I could uh, so I could re-watch it later on. I taped it on EP mode. If uh, folks remember what EP mode is, it's basically where you take a tape that, uh, that could you know record about two hours in decent quality. And you make it so it tapes about eight hours in really, really bad quality. To the point where, like, while you're watching it back, you're afraid that the entire thing is just going to disintegrate. You know, you're just going to have, like, a a pile of uh, powder in your VCR at the end of it. But that's how I did it. I was, uh, I guess I was too cheap to go out and buy, you know, video cassettes. Or maybe I just wanted 16 whole episodes on one tape so I wouldn't have to get up and change tapes. Maybe, maybe that's... (laughs) Maybe that's my problem. I don't know. I do remember being very excited uh, for the second season because uh, the first season, if I'm remembering right, uh, ended with the revelation that Mr. Sinister was watching over Cyclops and Jean, which was one of the things that was going on, you know, pretty heavy in the comics at the time, and I was really excited to see how that was translated to uh, to the animated series here. I didn't think there'd be any sort of, like, Third Summers Brothers sort of thing, but uh, it was still fun to see. I didn't like Mr. Sinister having pointy teeth, though. That was very, uh, very odd. But after the first season, I kind of just, it kind of just fell off for me. I I would watch sporadically. Um, And as my wife always puts it, like, every time you'd put X-Men on, they'd either be fighting dinosaurs or dealing with the phoenix. And, uh... Yeah, I recall that as well. Like, every time I put it on, it's like, oh, they're in the Savage Land still. And I kind of just fell off, like I said here. It just uh, wasn't must-see TV anymore, and uh, by then I was a burgeoning fake-ass comics historian who thought he knew more than uh, than others. So I would uh, discount all of the animated stuff like the jerk that I am. Anyway, with that, that bit of Christery out of the way, uh, let's get into our look at Pride of the X-Men here. Coming to us from 1989, written by Larry Parr, narrated by Stan Lee, produced by Rick Hoberg, Larry Houston, and, oh boy, Will Mugnoy? M-E-U-G-N-I-O-T. If anybody can help me pronounce that, uh, well, I, I would appreciate it. Uh, we got Marvel Productions, New World Television, and Toei Animation involved here. Now, we open with Stan Lee warning us that anyone we know could be a mutant. But never fear, not all mutants are bad. Though uh, there are some that definitely are. Uh, they're not just bad, they're evil. Now, we pan down to a road where a convoy of trucks is barreling down with some very precious cargo indeed. And that cargo is Magneto. 
and he's trapped in some sort of like a uh, energy beam canister gimmick. Now, he's being hauled away, assumedly to some sort of incarceration center by some uh, some rent-a-soldiers, rent-a-cops. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a bunch of uh, nameless facelesses except for one. Now, he demands to be released, but the stogie-chomping Colonel Jaffe ain't having it. He refers to Magneto as a dirty, stinking mutant and claims that he doesn't deserve to live on the same planet as regular old humans. So we get some fear and hate and maybe a little sympathy for Magneto just to kick things off here. Well, Magneto spoils that by vowing that his Brotherhood of Mutant Terrorists will take care of them. Just then, the convoy begins to sink into the ground, courtesy of uh, some mental trickery of the White Queen, who... Yeah, you know, the voices here are very odd. Um, some of them are good, some of them are not. Uh, the White Queen sounds a lot older than I thought she would. Very wicked witchy. It's not not great. Uh, the Renta soldiers flee the scene rather than to be sucked into the phony quicksand. And from here, Emma hurls an energy bolt <laughs> into the freighter carrying Magneto in order to free him. So I guess that's her tertiary mutation then. I don't know, the newly freed Magneto uses his powers on the colonel's rifle, tearing it to pieces before reassembling it, wrapping him up in it, basically. He then fires a blast of energy to blow the lid off the truck. So we got a lot of energy blasting going on here. Uh, The good Colonel Jaffe is then deposited into a nearby reservoir where he realizes that everything's gone a bit caca. Magneto rises from the hole in the truck and flies off. Time for a scene shift. We're over to the X-Mansion, where a cab pulls up to the front door. Now, the sassy cabbie tosses his passenger out with a quickness, claiming that this place gives him the creeps. Uh, The passenger, of course, is Call Me Kitty. And yeah, the mansion kind of gives her the creeps, too. She produces a note from her pocket that had been written by, uh, we're going to assume, Professor X. In it, he reveals that he's been able to deduce that she has a mutant power. Which... I mean, if you were to get a postcard from a stranger saying that, what, what would you do? I mean, would you send your young daughter halfway across the country to live with a creepy bald man and his weird students? Probably, right? Anyway, Kitty heads inside where she's greeted by the mental image of Professor Xavier. I mean, dude couldn't just, like, come out and meet her in the flesh? What a dick. Uh, she's led to the, I don't know, war room of the mansion where Chuck reveals that he is the leader of the X-Men. On a giant screen, we see uh, Dazzler, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, and Cyclops. Then we see Colossus and Storm. Now, Kitty's confused, because she thought the X-Men were mutants. Which, uh, why, why is this confusing? I mean, you're only here because you're a mutant, right? That shouldn't be confusing. Uh, Kitty freaks out a bit. She's going to freak out a lot. So she freaks out here, and she wonders how Chuck was able to figure out that she's a mutant because she hasn't told anybody about the uncanny things she can do, not even her parents. And so Charles shows her Cerebro, and Kitty freaks out again. Now she knows for a fact that she's a mutant freak, and so she begins to cry into her hands. Xavier tells her she's half right. She's a mutant, but mutants aren't freaks. Well, case-by-case basis there, pal. From here, Charles escorts Kitty into the control center of the danger room so she can see the X-Men in action. Now, the first one we see is Scott Summers, Cyclops, and uh, the X-Men are in some sort of Aztec jungle setting sort of place here. 
Now, he steps onto a tripwire, which triggers a net to pop up behind him, and then a great big idol on wheels barrels its way toward him. Scott taps on the sides of his visor before blasting the bejesus out of it, knocking it right to rubble. Next is Peter Rasputin, you know, Colossus. Now, he's inside a pyramid, deftly dodging a bunch of wall traps, as though his last name's Parker or something. And as he's about to be smashed by one of these walls, he colossuses up and destroys the trap. He then says, America, vada, cunt. No, no, he actually says, it's good, because Russian. Um, next, Alison Blair, Dazzler. Now, she's about to be eaten by some giant flowers, but then she finger guns some sound at them, blowing them up real good. Nightcrawler's next, and uh, Charles doesn't mention that his real name is Kurt Wagner. Uh, we watch as he bamps around, uh, you know, avoiding the punches of an Aztec golem of sorts. Then Wolverine rushes in with his razor-like adamantium claws, so Jim Shooter would be very proud, and he slices the golem to pieces. Then we pan up to the sky of the danger room where Storm causes, you know, a storm. Don't know why, but she does. Uh, so Wolverine, Storm, and Nightcrawler, they don't get their real names read out here, so I don't know what that's all about, but uh, eh, maybe it's an oversight. The professor then formally introduces himself, and it explains that he's a mind reader. But not to worry, because he never, ever uses his mutant gift recklessly. To which we will need a citation. Uh, Xavier then calls the X-Men up to the control room in order to meet their new friend. Now the first to arrive is Nightcrawler, who... He sounds like he really needs to hock a loogie. Like, very, very flemmy. Um, Now he approaches Kitty to give her a kiss on her hand, but she pulls away. And as she does so, she phases through the Danger Room control deck and causing it to spark, pop, and fizzle. Also, setting off a storm sequence, making it rain all over the X-Men in the down below. Now, Kitty falls all the way to the bottom of the Danger Room where she's caught by Colossus. And Xavier tells the gang to welcome Kitty Pride. Now, Wolverine is annoyed to have been given this impromptu shower. Yeah, after all, it isn't even Saturday yet. Colossus, however, loves getting wet. And he makes sure Kitty knows it. Nightcrawler proves to be quite the sex pest, telling Kitty that she skidooed before he could give her a creepy welcome. And Wolverine, he's, he's annoyed. He's still annoyed. He's now annoyed that there's some little squirt who might be joining the team. He then threatens to put some shrimp on the Barbie and eat a dingo baby or something. And then uh, something, something, energizer batteries. Um, Storm then lashes into Logan, and her voice sounds a lot like the one she had in the, uh, the animated series. It's not, uh, not, it could be the same person for all I know. She tells him to think back about how scared he was when he discovered he was a mutant, and then she causes a dark cloud to appear over his head and strikes him with lightning. Okay. Then the frivolity is, uh, is, is interrupted here. A red alarm begins to sound, and, uh, if you listen to the Essential X laughs, you'll know that, uh, there's a lot of red alerts, a lot of condition reds going on back in the Silver Age. But uh, Xavier identifies this as a mutant alert. And so the X-Men rush into battle, and Kitty hesitates before going to join them. Uh, uh, really? I mean, shouldn't she maybe not go running into battle? Uh, she's been here five minutes? No, thankfully she doesn't actually go with them. The X-Men load into their jets and they take off. We shift over to Magneto and, um, known mutant terrorist, the Chuggernaut, uh, as they watch the X-Jets fly out from the giant cave sticking out of the cliffside under X-Mansion, which is a 
kind of inconspicuous, right? <laughs> um, now, Magneto unleashes the Juggernaut to tear into the X-Mansion. And we kind of see a recreation of Kane's first approach of the mansion back in X-Men number 12 uh, from 1965. All sorts of traps and gimmicks pop out of the lawn and try to stop him. But, I mean, he's the Juggernaut. He's unstoppable. It's kind of his gimmick. Kitty and the Prof are inside watching this play out on that giant monitor. And Xavier explains that the goofball with the cape is Magneto, and the dude with the weird helmet is his stepbrother. He then refers to Juggernaut as one of Magneto's evil terrorist mutants. Fair enough. Um, And he explains that if Magneto is to win, he'll wind up enslaving humanity. Kitty, you guessed it, she freaks out again. And she accidentally phases through Cerebro, causing it to go all sorts of effed up. And also, somehow throwing a hitch into the mansion defenses, which opens a clear path for the baddies to burst in. I guess Cerebro is dialed into everything else in the mansion? I don't know. Xavier touches his head to try and figure out what Magneto wants, and what he wants is Cerebro's mutant doohickey circuit thing. And so, Charles ejects it from the machine, and it's a ball. It's a glowing ball. Uh, He hands it to Kitty and tells her to protect it at all costs. Which, huh, I mean, maybe it would have been safer just to send her with the X-Men then, because this is uh, not a good idea. By now, the Juggernaut has already crashed through into the Cerebro room, and Magneto demands that Kitty hand over the, cer- the Cerebro circuit. And so, she phases the F out of here. Magneto gives chase while Juggernaut calls Xavier Dear Stepbrother about a dozen times. Magneto slowly, slowly follows Kitty, telling her that humans hate her, and that she probably ought to just join up with him. Kitty's all, oh, hell nah, because humans and mutants can peacefully coexist, so she's been converted already. Xavier is a, he's a quick mover. Magneto then wriggles his wrist a whole lot, as though he's, like, stretching, you know, like uh, trying to get ready for a workout. But this prompts a bunch of live wires to pull themselves out of the wall, which shock Kitty silly. And as she slumps down, she tosses the circuit right into Magneto's waiting hands. Well, his waiting magnetic power beam thing, which then deposits it into his hands, anyway. From here, we rejoin the X-Men, who are headed to a deep space observatory to fight the Blob and Pyro. Now, this is made to look like we're going off-planet, like the Blackbird like, goes behind a planet <laughs> on its path here, but I don't think that's the case. I think we're still on Earth. Um, now, Blob, he talks like... Um, not quite sure how to describe it. It's, it's very, very slow and plodding. It's like, I'm the Blob... You know, very, very slow. Now, Pyro's got an accent um, of sorts. It feels like it's kind of like... Scottish here, but it's not. Um, Now, they've got a family trapped in this deep space observatory inside a fire net. Not sure why there's a family just hanging out here, but okay. Pyro then yanks a canister of something or another from a computer console. But then the X-Men arrive. Now, Colossus walks over to give the blob a hug, and old Fred Dukes ain't impressed. The goodies and the baddies then throw around some threats, Pyro tells them that uh, time's just about up before firing a wall of flame in the X-Men's direction. Storm responds by making it rain. By the time the dust and steam settles, the bad guys are gone. Nightcrawler bamps about a foot and a half so he can pick up the hostage kid's teddy bear, and, uh, well, thankfully he doesn't try to impose himself on her, too. The girl's parents freak out that Nightcrawler, a dirty, stinking mutant, by the way, came so close to their precious daughter. Then the police show up. So, 
uh, yeah, I guess we're not off-planet. It really looked like we were. Uh, Storm whisks the team away in a tornado. Next, we are off-planet. We're over to Asteroid M. Now, Magneto asks the Toad if the computer system has locked onto the comet. Toad giddily explains that it has. Then, the Cerebro Ball is inserted into the Magnetron. Lockheed the Dragon is there, for for some reason. Uh, Magneto kicks the poor little fella away. Now, after inserting the ball into the Magnetron, Toad chases Lockheed around a little bit. We jump back to the smoldering ruins of the mansion, where Professor X is found under a big ol' pile of rubble. Colossus picks him up and places him on a table that Cyclops cleaned off with his optic blasts. So sometimes the power is a curse, sometimes it's just an expedient way to clear a table. I don't know. Now, speaking of Cyclops' powers here, um, he goes over and he, he touches, he lays hands on the professor, which, it's a miracle. He, it, it heals Professor X. He's able to bend his legs and everything as he sits up. It's uh, truly a miracle. Uh, so much of a miracle that we will uh, never mention it again. Um, now, Xavier, he wonders where Kitty is. He's all nervous that, uh, that Kitty is uh, hurt. Now, this takes us a few rooms over, where Nightcrawler once again attempts to impose himself on the prone young lady, and she freaks out again. A Dazzler hugs her and comforts her. Wolverine says the X-Men don't have room for whiny brats, which, um, hmm, uh, that kind of, like, discounts 90% of the characters who have been X-Men over the past 20 years, so, uh, uh, Kitty gets right in Wolvie's face until Allie has her settle her tea kettle. Kitty then worries that uh, maybe Xavier's not okay, but of course he is. Kitty apologizes to him for losing the circuit, but nobody blames her. Nor should they. I mean, she's been here for maybe an hour or two tops. Xavier then touches his temples again to try to figure out what Magneto is up to. And so, we head back up to Asteroid M. Here, Magneto is getting his jollies holding on to a big old pair of balls. His uh, near-orgasm is all it takes for Xavier to be able to locate him. A bolt of energy bursts from Asteroid M, which causes Xavier himself to collapse. Now you see, <laughs> I don't know what the science is here, but Magneto was somehow able to capture the Scorpio Comet. I, I didn't know a comet could be a mutant. Um, I mean, why is Cerebro... I, I mean, we've got mutant islands. I guess it stands to reason there could be a mutant comet, right? Magneto vows that in less than a day, he will have wiped out most of the human race. Because you see, he's going to have Scorpio slam into the Earth. Now, if this were to happen, it would kick up so much dust and debris that it would block out the sun for years. So pretty much anyone who isn't, you know, killed by the impact would surely not last long anyway. The whole Earth would be plunged into an ice age. Wolverine then takes this opportunity to once again bitch that Kitty's here. And Kitty once again gets in his face. But here's the thing. Professor X actually agrees with Wolverine because Kitty needs training. She's a liability right now. And so the X-Men leave her behind with a Nightcrawler uh, referring to her as my child as he leaves, which makes the pawing at her throughout this episode all the more creepy. We close out the scene with Kitty vowing to... She's going to show them all. She's going to show them. She'll show them what she's capable of. And so the X-Men fly up to Asteroid M while a news report explains the dread situation the Earth is in regarding the Scorpio Comet. Now, you'd almost think, almost, that, you know, maybe the other Skadey 800 superheroes on Earth might decide to get involved in this. Maybe? I don't know. The X-Men then suit up in some astronaut outfits and float out toward the asteroid. 
Once alone, Xavier asks Kitty to come out from hiding. I guess trying to hide from a telepath isn't the smartest idea. Now, Kitty comes out of a locker, and she's all suited up, and she says that she's going to take on Magneto. Xavier doesn't stop her. He lets her enter space. Uh, (laughs) And I feel like i got to remind you that uh, this morning, she woke up in her bed at her parents' house in Chicago. So this has been quite the day for Ms. Bride. Back to the X-Men. Cyclops somehow fires his optic beam without blowing out the helmet of his spacesuit. Okay. Uh, This opens a hole in the asteroid so that they can enter. Now, Storm will remain here at the hole and gimmick up some atmosphere so, you know, not everything is sucked into the vacuum of space. Now, Wolverine's uh, superior tracking ability is going to help them suss out the location of the big bad. Now, naturally, an alarm begins to sound because, I mean, you just blew a hole in the side of a, a, you know, an evil mutant's uh, citadel, asteroid citadel, so it's uh, bound to happen. So Magneto punches Lockheed again, because why not? And the Brotherhood of Mutant Terrorists, which include Toad, White Queen, Blob, Pyro, and everybody's favorite mutant, the Juggernaut, they're dispatched to take down the good guys. We got Wolverine here. He leads the team down a hallway using his superior tracking skills, and they run into a wall of fire courtesy of Pyro. He greets them all with a g'day, so I guess the accent's supposed to be Australian. Okay. Uh, Dazzler throws a ball of sound at him, and then another, and then another, and then another. Uh, She keeps throwing balls at him, is what I'm trying to say. She tells the X-Men to hurry on without her, and she will keep this clown busy with her balls. As the team continues, they're met by Toad, who gets into a tussle with Wolverine. Now, speaking of Australian accents, Wolverine actually refers to the Toad as a Dangau, which, uh, okay. Uh, Wolverine and Toad bounce around a bit, until the latter bounces into a cave-like opening, which Wolverine slices up the entryway of, which seals the geek inside. For some reason, Wolverine doesn't continue on this journey at this point. He just stays here. So (laughs) we're down to three. We got Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Cyclops. Uh, Now, they run into the Juggernaut. Colossus armors up, and they have a test of strength, which leaves us with two. Nightcrawler and Cyclops continue. They're confronted by Emma Frost, who hurls an energy spear at them. Cyclops blasts it before it can hit them. And so Nightcrawler continues. So Cyclops, I guess he's uh, making time with the White Queen or whatever. Uh, Any guesses what happens next to Nightcrawler? Yep, he runs right into the blob. And Kurt just bamfs past him. That's that's it. And Blob, you know, he looks around a bit and goes, where did he go? So I guess that's how you beat the Blob. So now we've got Magneto versus Nightcrawler. Magneto has stood before a monitor, not not quite as big or as impressive as Professor X's, but uh, it has a timer on it, a countdown clock, three minutes, and Magneto informs Nightcrawler that the Earth will be destroyed after those three minutes elapse. Now, just as Mags is about to blast Nightcrawler with an energy beam, Kitty phases up from the down below and grabs Magneto's wrist. Now, as they struggle, Lockheed decides to bite Magneto's ankle, which causes Mag's energy blast to go skyward, which breaks the circuit. The magnetron, whatever the hell it is, is ruined. Professor X then mentally tells Kitty Pride to strike at Magneto right now. And so she, a 14-year-old who probably weighs like 80 pounds, she spears the grown-ass Magneto right out of his boots. And they land on that platform where Magneto was playing with those balls earlier. From here, Nightcrawler uses his own body to reconnect the circuit. And 
I guess Magneto, by being on this platform, somehow changes the trajectory of the comet? From here, Kitty's voice changes a bit. She affects this weird, like, Bridget Jones twang as she informs Magneto that the comet will circle back and destroy Asteroid M instead of the Earth. And uh, Magneto doesn't care. He really just doesn't give a crap. He tells Kitty that, hey, you know what? Your buddy Nightcrawler is completing the circuit, so he's going to die here. Because if he lets go, the comet will suddenly change its mind and head back to destroying Earth or something? I, I don't know. Maybe it is a mutant comet. I don't know. Uh, Magneto pops into his Magno bubble and pieces out with the rest of the terrorists. Nightcrawler tells Kitty to get the, the Joppa or something like that. I mean, his accent is weird, too. Uh, Kitty says that she can't leave Kurt here to die. Professor X mentally tells her to get the F out. And so she grabs Lockheed and they make a run for it. Xavier tells Kurt that he's going to have to bamf on out of there the precise moment that the comet hits, which, I mean, duh. Uh, now, Kurt does the thing, but he waited just a second too long. He escaped the asteroid, yes, but he's plummeting back toward Earth's atmosphere where he will burn up. Not sure why he doesn't just teleport again, <clears throat> but what are you going to do? The X-Men then try to use the Blackbird's grappling beam to save him, but before they can reach him, he vanishes. Now, Kitty is super sad because she was so mean to him earlier, though... I mean, he was coming on a bit strong, yes. Um, but then, the X-Men hear a knocking from one of the lockers. Who in the hell could that be? Well, of course, it's Nightcrawler, because he bamfed again, naturally. He tells Kitty that she saved him, which... I, I don't know, did she? I, I don't think she did. Uh, he finally gets to give her that kiss on her hand, and then she gives him a kiss on the cheek, which will only encourage his behavior. Storm turns to Wolverine to ask him what he thinks of Kitty now, and he growls and says she just got lucky. He insists that she's not an X-Man, not yet anyway. We close out with Stan Lee telling us that while the X-Men won this day, their story isn't over yet. Because Magneto is still a dick, and he won't stop until the human race is either enslaved or wiped out. And that was Pride of the X-Men. What do you guys think of that one? I liked it. Um, I mean, it was endearingly cheesy at times. Um, the continuity, I mean, <laughs> what, what even is the continuity here? But all the same, it was a good time. I think this has actually been designated as its own Earth, so uh, we don't have to worry about continuity quite so much. This is the way the story happened on Earth 652975, which uh, includes this show and uh, the X-Men arcade game, apparently. Now, I remember watching a lot of people play that game uh, at the arcades when, when arcades were still, you know, a thing that existed on the on the planet, but uh, I never really played it. I might have played it a couple times, but I am I'm very much a cheapskate. So the idea of plunking quarters into a machine that I'd never get back and never get to take anything home with me <laughs> was uh, not my idea of a good expenditure, especially, I mean, 1992, comics were a buck and a quarter, so... I could either play a game five times and, and die, you know, quickly, or I can buy a comic book. So I was going to buy a comic book. But it looked really fun, and it looked beautiful, too. It was a great pixel graphics, uh, just a, a real real sight to behold. And uh, this one had the multiple screens, so it just it looked very, very impressive. But, I mean, at the same time, it's just another Konami beat-em-up where, I mean, the whole thing is made to kill you and make you spend more money. And I'm trying to remember if this was a quarter machine or if it was a 50 cent machine. 
I think maybe the one with the multiple screens was a 50 center. I, I could be mistaken. I mean, this is 100 years ago, so I may be mistaken, but it was a beautiful looking game. I love the array of characters you had, even though I didn't know who half of these characters were, right? Um, when I started reading these books, Dazzler wasn't on the team, Nightcrawler wasn't on the team. I mean, Kitty wasn't in the game, but she also wasn't on the team. It makes me wonder, had I come up with the $70 to buy the video cassette back in the early 90s, or if I was able to actually catch this thing on the action hour, what would I have thought of this special back in the day? And I mean, continuity quirks taken off the board altogether because... I didn't know that Emma Frost didn't have energy blasts, you know? I did. I probably didn't even realize that the Juggernaut wasn't a mutant back in the day. So I'm sure that wouldn't have turned me off. Um, the fact that we have members of the team that I wasn't familiar with, I don't think that would have turned me off necessarily, but it would have, uh, it would have really made me question what the X-Men were, right? Um, coming in with the uh, Jim Lee stuff, I mean, I didn't know that Nightcrawler was an important character. I didn't know that Kitty Pride was an important character. I... All I knew about Dazzler was that she might be pregnant with Shatterstar at that point. So I didn't know that they were actually important. I mean, back in the day, we didn't have a Wikipedia. We didn't have digital comics. We didn't have as easily available you know, access to trade collections, right? There just wasn't all that much out there. So if you didn't read them initially, or if you didn't you know, plunk down a whole bunch of money to get those back issues, it's kind of hard to get the context. And you know, I probably, if I had watched this back then, I probably would have assumed that Kitty Pride was a ripoff of Jubilee, which uh, would probably earn me a few raised eyebrows, and uh, I would deserve it. So enough about the stuff that I wouldn't have gotten, and, and some. let's go into some of the stuff that I would have definitely appreciated back in the day. Uh, the remaining characters, right? Uh, Cyclops has been my favorite for a long, long time. I didn't... I didn't always like him with the head sock. I like him with his hair out, like uh, the Jim Lee costume and the Protasio one. From right before that I like that look the best for Cyclops But, I mean, he's still Cyclops uh, Now Storm It's interesting, I was looking at some storyboards For this in an issue of Marvel Age And they considered using uh, The well, the hairdo that Kitty was scared of On Storm here But they decided against it um, And they went with the more classic Storm look And I wonder if maybe the next episode If this was ever picked up and made into a series if she would have had the mohawk so we could have Kitty scared of it on, on film. Because Lord knows we need more references to that uh, to that scene from back in the day, right? Uh, now, Wolverine, uh, I think, like, the main takeaway a lot of folks have is, like, hey, he had an Australian accent, which is usually followed up by somebody, like, reminding us that, hey, did you know he was played by an Australian guy in the movies? And then we do the secret handshake, which ends with us patting ourselves on the back for whatever reason. But snarkiness aside... The accent was rough. <laughs> it was very, very thick. Uh, to the point where I had to actually rewind a couple times because I just hadn't the foggiest idea what he was trying to say. And he didn't get very many lines. But when he did speak, it was just like, what did he say? I just didn't know. But, you know, jumping back to when I was, you know, 11, 12 years old, meeting the X-Men for the first time, I can't say with certainty that I knew he wasn't Australian in the comics, so this might have just made me think he was Australian. I wonder how many folks saw this before ever reading an X-Men comic, and then, you know, when you come to find that Wolverine's not Australian, you're just, like, scratching your head. We also do get a big old dollop of uh, fear and hate for uh, the mutant kind here. We've got uh, the good Colonel Jaffe referring to Magneto as a dirty, stinking mutant who doesn't deserve to be on the same planet as humanity. And I'm sure that would have uh, resonated with me being a fan of uh, the early 90s here because, 
I mean, that was the era where you'd get like the top 10 lists in Wizard Magazine. I'm pro- I probably have mentioned these before where they were very yeah, too cute by half, where it's like, these are the top 10 villains of the X-Men. And like you'd get to number two and it would be Magneto. And you're like, well, okay, well, what's number one then? And it's humanity. And it's like, ooh, <laughs> very, very deep. So I'm sure I would have eaten that up with a spoon back then. Now, speaking of villains, I suppose we could talk about uh, Magneto's plan to sick a comet on the Earth. (laughs) Which, I mean, this is just a TV one-shot here. It doesn't need to be deep. It doesn't need to really have a whole lot of heart and soul to it. It's just bad guys do bad things, good guys save the day. It's all it needed to be, as silly as it is, and how... I mean, I don't want to say the science doesn't make sense, because frankly, I mean, we're talking about... Comics here, but I mean, why would Cerebro's core control a comet? I don't know, but we'll, of course, we will allow it because uh, really, what choice do we have at this point, right? Suppose I can close out by talking a little bit about uh, the art and the animation here. That's one thing I've heard people complain about a lot with this was how poor the animation was. And yeah, I mean, it wasn't great. Uh, but then again, I mean, the X Men 1992 cartoons animation wasn't great either. Frankly, all of the uh, comic book cartoons of the day had to be compared to Batman the Animated Series, which was an unfair comparison to basically anything but Batman the Animated Series, because that was a... And you know, for as little as I actually cared for Batman the Animated Series, I have to admit that it was just gorgeously done. I mean, it was stylized. It made everything else look just so cheap by comparison. So this was what it was. I mean, it wasn't as great as Batman the Animated Series in, you know, production value, but it also wasn't clutch cargo. <laughs> so it was perfectly passable. And uh, as the first time you're seeing a lot of these characters in action, it must have just been just amazing for longtime X-Men fans to finally see some of these characters uh, brought to life. I'd compare it to current year fans seeing the movies, but uh, those are mostly viewed by people who would never pick up a comic book if their lives depended on it. But I think that's all I have to say about uh, the long, elusive to me, Pride of the X-Men. I'm very happy that I finally got around to watching it. Uh, it was one of those odd blind spots that, as a lifelong X-Men fan, uh, is one of those, you know, uh, secret shames, I guess. But now it's off the list. And I hope you all enjoyed my take. And uh, I would love to hear from you if you did or even if you didn't. Um, thinking about Deep Six in the social media in a little bit here. Um, really not doing the old mental health any good to put so much effort into something and see how little people actually care about it. So I do very much want to keep the shows going. It's just uh, might be some changes in the offing. But uh, until those decisions are made, you can still find me on various social media platforms. I mostly hang out on Twitter, and I'm at Ace Comics over there. You can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. And for the entire archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And uh, that is available just about anywhere that uh, you could find noise on the internet. But that's where we're going to leave it. I want to thank you all for allowing me to be a small part of your day today. It really, really means the world to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Now be gone.